Hey, I want to introduce you to my friend, Pastor Sean. Pastor Sean's been uh, the pastor of Calvary Chapel Morgantown. He planted that church. How long ago, Sean? Uh, 15 years years ago. He's been a pastor. He was on staff at a church out in California before that. He's served in the military for a number of years. Dear friend of mine, every time we get together, the only complaint we ever have is that we don't get together more often. Uh, I know the Lord's been working through him and his fellowship, and I asked him to come over here this morning and share with us. And uh, we do go back and forth when we get a chance. And there's a there's kind of a neat thing about a Calvary Chapel family, how we're united. And with all the pastors that are around, even though they're not real close, we have that common bond, and it's, it's just a blessing. So I introduce you to Pastor Sean. Come on up. And uh, he's going to be sharing with us the first two sessions this morning. And, you know, we worshiped in song. Now let's worship in the study of his word. And let's not just hear it. Let's take it and apply it to our lives. Well, good morning. Good to, uh, it's good to gather. Uh, Rob had shared with me that there are uh, many of us are from different regions of this area. And uh, there's a common bond in the body of Christ that we share uh, a love for Him. Uh, it's less about geography, it's more about passion of pursuit. As we prepare our hearts to consider this theme of following God. Uh, Let's take God's word, and if you would, stand with me, and let's read a portion we're going to study this morning. So if you would, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. It would seem to make sense that if we're going to consider a theme of following God, uh, then it would be reasonable that in the book of Origins, the book of Genesis, is where we could easily look to find example of men who would uh, set before them a passion of following God. I suspect that this text is familiar to most of us, if not all of us. But we'll read here from Genesis 6 to understand a little bit uh, of a setting. Genesis 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. I am sorry that I have made them. But... Noah found face, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that in every generation you have raised up men to stand fast in the, in the currents and the pressures that desire to rebel against you, desire to resist your lordship. And we thank you, Lord, that you have called us to live in this generation and that you have called us distinctly to serve you. And we thank you, Lord, that we have found grace in your face. In light of who you are, Lord, you have chosen to call us in grace. And so lead us this morning as we study your words. May you work in our hearts those things that need attending. And may you come upon us in the power of the Holy Spirit, filling us to overflowing that we may be able to stand fast in the generation that you call us to and to follow you with passionate hearts of pursuit. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
You can be seated. In our fellowship, many years ago, um, I observed a man uh, who follows this principle of standing in the reading of God's Word. And the first time I was exposed to that, I was so blessed. I was at a youth pastor's conference. I was serving as a youth pastor at the time, and Pastor Damien had stood and he invited the men to stand, or the, everyone there to stand. And it has been something that we've carried over as a practice in our fellowship. And I want to be very clear that it's not an, a hollow tradition. It's not a men, I think we can all gravitate. We eat the same breakfast day after day. We listen to the same music. Um, but one of the things that can resonate within our hearts is we can slip into taking God's word for granted. It becomes familiar. And so we don't treat it with reverence. And there is a need in our generation for a reverence for God's word. I see many of you have your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible this morning, I'm sure if you need one, you know, Rob can, can get one to you. But Every man needs a compass in his, his life to provide direction, and God is that compass for us. He directs us, and He's given us His Word. And so standing in the ancient culture was a, was a, a normal practice. In fact, in the ancient culture, the teacher would sit and the, the hearers would stand. Uh, but I've journeyed long enough as a pastor, I know you won't put up with that. So I'll stand, you sit, uh, I get it. As we look at the book of Genesis, we see that the, the pursuit of God is, is, is present in the very beginning. As we would make sense, we look at the book of origins, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, and at the very beginning of the book, we see the invitation to follow God is presented. And so if you turn a little bit from Genesis 6... And look at uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Again, we get the account very familiar to us, but there's a subtlety in here. And it's easily missed. In verse 15, it says, The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. So we know initially this is the setting of Adam and Eve. He's created the earth. He's created uh, Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden to tend to it. And we know how this unfolds, right? Oftentimes with Scripture, familiarity can oftentimes lead us to overlook or to ignore detail. But I want to draw your attention to something here in the very beginning he puts them into the garden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there we have the very first invitation to follow God. And the invitation to follow is in response to a command that requires obedience. So when we begin to examine the principle of following after God, many times we see it framed in the context of obedience. God had put man in the garden. He set him there to tend and to keep it. 
But then he gave him an instruction. He says, of all the, all the trees in the garden you can freely eat, but of the, the tree of the knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So there's the command. He's told what to do. And the decision to follow after God is manifested in his life, in Adam's life, by his willingness to do what? To be obedient. Obedience is a challenge, I think, for every man. We live in a generation today where our culture, the morality of our culture, it's, it's pretty much agreed upon that it's in a decline, and it's been in a decline for several generations now. What we're seeing manifested in our lifetime as men really began as a moral decline that started in the late 30s and early 40s. And as in all things, we make a decision, and the outcome of that decision, the consequences of that decision, take a protracted time to begin to unfold, right? We, we all know this, right? We, we make a decision, and it takes time for it to manifest or to reveal the true consequences of it. We're living in a generation today that we're really continuing to experience the consequences that are protracted out of decisions that, that generations have made before us. And so we have been called as a generation to live in a, in a culture that is in moral decline. Now, what, what this produces in many men is oftentimes in talking with men, they say, you know, well, I, you know, I, we, the, the culture is so perverse and it's so wicked there almost is a prevailing attitude in men today of a hopelessness of any influence. A hopelessness of, that it's never going to change, it's never going to get better, it's never going to be different. But what's important to understand that whether it improves or does not, does not affect our obedience and our response to the invitation to follow God and to pursue God in a generation. Our culture does not define action. But if we're not careful, it subtly will drift into that. I don't have to spend any time to explain to you where we are in a generation. But I know and I'm confident it is not as bad as the time of our next example, or really our first example. I've chosen two texts this morning to used to examine as examples of individuals in history that followed God. Now we know Adam, not so much, <laughs> right? Uh, when Adam was confronted with failure, what did he do? He blamed God and he blamed the woman, right? <laughs> right? Was, he, God, you guys know the story. He says, Adam, where are you? And Adam, first response is, you know, uh, well, I heard you in the garden, and you know, I heard you in the still in the morning, and I, and I was fearful. And sin always produces fear in our lives. And then, you know, he says, yeah, you know, what have you done, right? Have you eaten the, of the tree of the knowledge? It's that woman you gave me, God, <laughs> right? And in one sentence, he removes himself two places from responsibility. And this is common in a man's heart. I think if you haven't recognized it in your own soul, how quick you are to blame your actions on someone else, if you haven't quick ide quickly identified that in your life, you need to lay hold of that. Because if we're going to follow after God as men, we must confront 
and resist the temptation to shift blame. And we have to resolve in our own hearts, are we going to be obedient or are we going to blame someone else for our dereliction? As Rob mentioned, um, I had the privilege to serve in the military for a, a period of time. And one of the terms in the military is dereliction of duty. It's a principle that when you clearly understand your duty, failure to not do that duty is considered dereliction. It's a measurable, observable trait. And as Christian men, if we understand the calling in our lives of what God has commanded us to do, then we must measure, are we following after God in obedience or are we derelict? How many of you guys are in a position of leadership where you hire and fire and make decisions about people uh, that you have authority over? Yeah, a couple of us here this morning, right? How many of you guys are in the market for derelicts? How, like when you when you advertise in the um, in the newspaper, uh, derelicts wanted individuals who refuse to follow instruction, individuals who fail to do what they're told. Now you're laughing at me. Nobody ever does that, right? So then the question is, men, in our pursuit of God, God desires us to be responsive to what he commands us to do, right? I mean, it's not reasonable to think that God wants derelict men to pursue and to carry the banner of his name in a generation. He wants upright men, men of, of character, men of, of stature, men of quality. The quality of a man's character is manifested in their actions measured in obedience. So our next example is found here in the book of Origins, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 6. Now, I want you to get a, a real clear sense. We read this text here, but I think it's very important for us to understand the culture in which Noah finds himself. There are some descriptors of it. In verse 5, you know, the, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, in our generation, there are still bright spots of individuals who are living uh, bold lives that are, are focused on doing uh, good things. With the advent of news and the information overload that we're all exposed to, it's easy to slip into a, a view that only wicked things are happening. That's not true. That is the effect of a, of a cultural saturation of, of uh, limited input. There are good things happening in our culture. There are people being set free, free from drug addiction. There are people um, restoring their marriages. There are actually young marriages today that are living with passionate to honor God and to raise their children to serve Him and to love Him and to do right things for right reasons and right ways in our generation. There are good young adults that are coming through uh, the system and having influence internationally and nationally. But we're inundated with a, with a view that, you know, there are uh, tragic shootings every day, like Virginia Beach, and, uh, and that there are uh, 
morally compromised uh, leaders. We may tend to think that our generation is the worst, but it's not. (laughs) In fact, here's the descriptor. The wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent, not some intents, every intent of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now this brought God to the place that he said, you know what, I'm, I'm grieved that I even created man. So the reason I'm mentioning this, because if you ever slip into that self-pity mode of thinking, well, you know, my generation's the worst. It's not. It'll never be the worst. God even promised he would never again wipe out the earth with a flood that Noah goes through. There is going to be uh, events in the end of the age. Will there be judgment? Yes. The reason I'm taking some time to, to form this idea is because when we live in wickedness, we have a tendency to feel sorry for ourselves. And we have a tendency to think, well, oh man, it's so bad and everything is going on. And... I think if we're honest with ourselves as men, sometimes we feel sorry for ourselves. Well, you don't understand how hard I've got it. You don't understand what I had to go through. When we look at a man like Noah, he helps us to get a frame of reference, a standard of truth, a benchmark to measure our lives by. And here, Noah, notice it says, uh, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Now, how did this manifest in Noah's life? If you continue with me into verse 9, it says, This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation, and Noah walked with God. So now think of the culture he was in. Everyone was doing evil. There was this pervasive element of of evil continually. Everybody doing wickedness. But Noah was a righteous man. Peter, in 2 Peter, says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So in a whole generation that is opposed to doing what is right, they only do wickedness, they're only perverse, their only thoughts are to do that which is rebellious, that which is ungodly, that which is self-seeking. Noah stood fast. He, in a, if you would imagine a stream, uh, you guys have you know, the yak here, I'm sure you're familiar, you've seen different streams of water, and currents flow very strong. And in order to stand fast against heavy current, it's very difficult. In fact, if you've ever done any fishing with waders, you know, oftentimes you have to position your footing against current to resist. You actually sometimes have to lean against it. I love the imagery, if you've ever seen it, of salmon. Salmon in the Pacific Northwest, they will spawn and they go against these mighty roaring rivers to get to their spawning grounds. And their ability to fight against strong current is, is world-renowned. In fact, maybe you've seen the image of the, of the salmon jumping out of the water to get up a, a waterfall, to get up river, right? Maybe you've seen the image of the bear snatching the, the salmon out of the air. There's that image too. But I want you to think... You know, because sometimes we just feel like, you know, yeah, we're fighting against the current and we're always, that bear is about ready to snatch us out. 
What I want you to consider is what does it take for a salmon to swim so strong against current? He has to have clarity. He has to have intention. He has to have will. He has to have determination. He has to be focused on where he's trying to get to. You see, because any dead fish can float downstream. It takes a strong fish to swim against current. And Noah was a, a man who stood fast in the most wicked culture in the history of mankind. And it says of him that he was a just man. Now think about that. When everybody's business dealings were shady and wicked, he was just. He did the right deal. He honored his word. When everybody was uh, lying or uh, expanding, you know, uh, deviating from truth, he told the truth. When everybody was, was compromising their values, when everyone was making decisions maybe uh, on their marriages or their, their taxation or whatever was going on, Noah was a just man. One of the things that comes up oftentimes as a pastor and also as a father is this conversational dialogue that goes on that says, well, everyone else is doing it. Do you ever wrestle with that one in your head? If you're a businessman, you're like, man, you know, everybody's, everybody's cheating the margins. Everybody's misrepresenting that. And look, they're profiting. And if I, if I pay my taxes and I pay workman's comp and I do all the things and I file all the things, man, how, how am I going to provide for my family? But Noah was a just man in his generation. In fact, it says, interesting, he was mature, he was perfect. So when his whole world around him had compromised values in every aspect of their lives, he stood fast. And it says that he was perfect in his generation, but there's an indicator here of what enabled him to stand fast in his generation. You see, he did what? He walked with God. Walking is a, an, an action indicator. It indicates an individual in motion. It's not a static action. It's not a static statement. It's an individual who's moving in a direction. Kind of like that salmon. The current flows. It's pushing heavy against. There is physical pressure against that fish's uh, anatomy. And he is resolved to press against it to move in a direction opposite of what everything else is, is pushing him towards. And maybe as a Christian man this morning, you can identify this pressure. You know, we have young adults here with us this morning. And maybe as a young adult, you're living in a generation and you say, wow, you know, marriage is no longer clearly defined. And will I ever find a godly woman that loves God? Will I ever be able to establish myself? Maybe you've journeyed for a period of time in your life and, and you've now resolved to walk with God and you're wondering, you know, is it ever going to work out? Is it, you know, am I ever going to get ahead? Am I ever going to stop living paycheck to paycheck? 
There are pressures that push. And I think we would be foolish to think that Noah didn't experience them. I mean, why would Noah not experience those same things? And yet, in a wicked and perverse generation, he stood fast. He was that force of opposition to the current that was pushing against him. You could say, kind of like our theme, he was following God in a generation opposed to God. And if you notice here, in, uh, it says that he walked with God and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The principle of walking with God is filled with a lot of challenge. You have to constantly remain in motion if you're walking. You can walk aimlessly, but if you want to arrive at a destination, you have to walk with purpose. It indicates effort and intent. And there are things that we'll see in Noah's life that indicate that he was an individual that was walking with intention. So we know that he found grace with God, and we know that he walked with God, and we know that he was a man perfect in his generation. He has three sons. I see there are many men here in various seasons of life, so I'm confident that many of you have raised children and had to push and to navigate the challenges of raising your children up in a generation, helping them to, to make good decisions, to develop solid character. So when we look at biblical individuals in the history of their lives, like Noah, don't think Noah didn't know the challenges of parenting. Don't think Noah didn't know the challenges of making business decisions and right decisions in a culture. You see, oftentimes as men, when we're reading our Bibles, we have a tendency to think, oh, well, Noah can't relate to me, or that's ancient history, or it doesn't relate to me. No, it absolutely relates to us, because these men were men. We, we know that Elijah, who lived many generations after Noah, the descriptor of Elijah is he was a man just like us. He wasn't some super spiritual human individual. He was an ordinary man. Now Noah, because he, of, his, of God's choosing of him, God gives him a very unique instruction. So in verse 11, we continue to get the descriptor. The earth was also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And so God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way in all the earth. To some degree, I think we could relate with Noah. There's a lot of corruption around us. We live in a generation where there's a lot of pressure to rebel against God, to adopt principles that are contrary to what God teaches. A lot of pressure in that. So I think Noah is a great example for us today, tangible. And if we look at, say, hey, if I want to be a man that follows God, Noah is a, a realistic, observable example to us. Would you agree? I mean, it's there. I mean, this, we're not just snatching something out of the air here. We now have found a tangible, good example of a man who follows God. So let's look at it. 
Let's look at how this lived out in his life. God said to Noah in verse 13, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, covered inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. And you shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to, do, to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with a lower, a second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing flood waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh which is in uh, which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So there's the command. Noah, I want you to build an ark. Now what is Noah's option at this point? He could say, okay, I'm in. Or I'm out. No way. I don't know how much you have ever looked at um, this idea of building an ark and the, the intricacies and the demand of this task. The dimensions of the ark, 450 feet long, right? Longer than a football field. 75 feet uh, in width. And... 45 feet high. When I was in the military, I had the privilege of serving. My first ship was the USS Missouri. It was a battleship. Keel was laid in the, in the late 30s. It saw duty in multiple uh, world conflicts. Uh, it was uh, almost 700 feet long. It was 105 feet at the beam. A uh, massive vessel still yet smaller than an aircraft carrier in the modern age. How many of you have seen pictures of the, uh, the Noah's Ark replica that is down, what is it, in Kentucky, Tennessee? Kentucky, yeah. Um, huge example, this massive seagoing structure. How many of you guys have ever been on a ship at sea? A couple of you. So you understand the idea of a ship at sea. So here's Noah. Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth. I want you, I want you, Noah, to build an ark. Now, there's no indicator that Noah has any background in ark building. Because prior to this time, how many arks have been constructed? Secret, right? Zero. Noah describes something, or God describes something to Noah that is completely unfamiliar. He says, Noah, I'm going to flood the earth. It had never rained on the earth prior to this time. Flood? What, what are you, what are you? He's describing something to Noah that is unfamiliar. He couldn't intricately outline all the details of an understanding of what God was telling him and he had to some degree to make a decision, am I going to trust God and do what he tells me to do even though I don't understand all the details? Or am I going to say, nope, I don't know enough, I'm out. You see, this is the decision he's wrestling with. And don't we as men confront a similar thing? God tells us, you know, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What? 
What do you mean, love my wife like Christ loved? I, I mean, I barely comprehend God's love of me. And now you've put on me the responsibility to love her like that? I don't, what do, what do you mean? Can't I build an ark or something? Right? Can't you give me something easy to do? Don't you love Peter? Peter says, husbands, dwell with your wives with what? Understanding. Really? Couldn't you have elaborated there a bit? What do you mean? Or maybe God calls you to do something in your life and you say, I don't understand, I don't see it, I don't see the next, well, I, don't, I can't outline it, you didn't give me a road map. And God tells Noah, Noah, build the ark. Now he gives him some descriptors and there's the indicator he has a plan, but there is a, an elaborate detail to this. He's given the wood type, the gopher wood, uh, make rooms in the ark, cover it the outside with pitch, and this is how you shall make it, length and arc, right? He gives the, all the dimensions. Put a door in the side of it, put a window in it, and it should have a, a lower, a second, and a third deck. So he's told what to do, and now he has to make a decision whether he's going to be obedient. And there's the decision point. Following God requires an act of obedience, even if you don't have all the information. Right? That's, it's, it's, there's an element of obedience in it. Now this is relative to all of our lives. Because none of us see how our lives are going to unfold. We don't know what we're going to be doing a year, five years, ten years, fifteen years. We don't know what our health is going to be a year, five, ten years, fifteen years in advance. We don't know what our financial status, we don't know what the, the, the economy is going to be doing. We don't know what our culture will be doing. A lot of unknowns. But God still invites me. I want you to remember what Jesus told the disciples. We see this principle of following God represented all throughout the scriptures. And remember what Jesus said to the disciples early on. What did he say? He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. There is an invitation to follow, which requires obedience. So this is a consistent theme in following God is there is a command, there is an invitation, but then there is a response in the human level. That's volition. God gives each of us, we must choose. We have to choose it, how we're going to respond to the command. Obedience is what God is looking for, hoping to find in us, and this is what he finds in Noah, obedience. We know this. We'll skip here uh, ahead a little bit. Look at verse 22. We'll kind of get a glimpse of, of how this is going to turn out. It says, uh, thus Noah did, and I want you to notice what Noah, how he did it, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. So there's the end. We know what Noah, or what Noah chooses. He chooses obedience he chooses to do what God's called him to do, and he does it fully and completely. Now, what does it take to build an ark? 450 feet vessel, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. There is some differing opinions about duration of time for Noah to do this. Noah ultimately lives 950 years. Now you might be quick to say, well, yeah, if I could live a thousand years, I'd build an ark in my life too, right? I have nothing else to do, right, for a few hundred of those years. At 500 years, he, he has his children, and by the time it's 600 years, we know he's afloat on the ark. 
So there is some, there's a window there of somewhere about a hundred years because we know his three sons take wives on the ark. And his sons are born to him when he's 500 years old. So we get a marker in there that in order for his, his sons to mature to an appropriate age to have a wife, there's a gap in there that some would estimate anywhere from 50 to 100 years to build this ark. <laughs> if we're honest with ourselves, as men, sometimes we have a difficult time doing anything for seven days. <laughs> right? How many of you guys, quick show of hands, all right, this, quick show of hands. How many of you guys have endeavored to have devotionals and read through a Bible in a year? Right? Uh, how many of you have made a resolution, hey, you know, by next year I'm going to lose 20 pounds? Right? Right, we all, I mean, we're talking short-term commitment here. You know, we're talking 12 months, 365 days. Noah is endeavoring to do something for as long potentially as up to a hundred years. Endeavoring to do something. God says, Noah, I want you to build an ark. It's 75 feet long, 45 feet high, right? Or 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. I mean, there's no Lowe's that sells timber. They don't carry gopher wood. He can't go to Lowe's. He's got to mill it. He's got to, he's got to cut it down. He's got to haul it. He's got to find the, 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 the ingenuity, you know, to fashion these beams and, and these devices and, and create the structures. And uh, I mean, how long does it take pitch? How long does it take to put pitch on a 450 foot vessel? That had to have been at least a couple years. Collect the pitch, heat up the pitch, brush the pitch, collect the pitch, heat the pitch, apply the pitch. Days after days. It has been estimated that, that the size, it's 1.4 million cubic feet to the ark capable of holding 522 railroad cars. Now, this is a, a railroad hub, Cumberland is, right? Do they have trains? Anybody here have any... Do trains carry, uh, pull 522 cars? Can they even do that? That's a lot of, that's a lot of cars, right? But can you imagine all the, all the cars sitting out here in Cumberland on a vessel loaded in 1.4 million cubic feet in this vessel? That's a lot of pitch, don't you think? you got to coat that thing and cut that thing and move that thing. How do you get a beam 45 feet in the air as a decking structure? I mean, just think of it. Now, here's why I'm taking some time to do this. Because as men, I already know that many of us make excuses about why we can't. Ah, I can't do that. We're all so quick to identify why we can't. I can't serve God in my generation. I can't love my wife as Christ loved the church. I can't honor God in these things. I can't control my mouth. I can't, right? I mean, we're so quick. I can't, I can't. But think about Noah. He was a man who found grace in the sight of God. He was righteous and perfect in his generation. And when God said, Noah, I want you to build an ark. Right on, God. <laughs> By the way, God, how do you do that? Well, you know, let, you know, do you think as he was walking with God, 
he was asking, you know, hey, you know, God, kind of like, what, what wood joints hold up really good in heavy seas? Because I've never been on heavy seas, but if I were on heavy seas, what kind of wood joints would work really well? Or, you know, when I'm fastening these deck boards or these hull boards around the, the frame of the, the inner frame of this vessel, God, what, what, what do you think? What would be good fasteners for heavy seas? So many times as men to walk with God, it's when I'm following him is looking to him for instruction. God, what college do I go to? What career path do I pursue? What wife do I marry? What car do I buy? What financial commitment do I make? There's a parallel in the building of the ark and the way that we're living out our lives because we, like Noah, are living in a generation where there's wickedness and peril and a lot of wrong decisions to make. But in order to make right decisions and to walk in obedience, I must be walking with God and, and communicating with Him. We know that God communicates with Noah. Now you say, well, there, see, there you have it, Sean. You've identified it. See, that's why I can't be the man God's called me to be in my generation because God doesn't talk to me like he did Noah. I want to remind you of something. When Jesus walked with the disciples, there were many times in Jesus' life they were, he sent his disciples out on the sea and they were in a storm and they're freaking out and he comes to them. He saw him feed the multitudes. Uh, he saw him cast out demons. He saw him heal the sick. He saw the divine provision of God in, in, in Jesus, right? And so there would be a temptation to think that the best place to be on the earth is what? With Jesus. You would say that, right? You might have even said, well, you know, this would be easier if Jesus was with me. But I want you to remember something. Before his crucifixion, he told his disciples in the Gospel of John, he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. Yeah. What? What do you mean, my advantage? We, as followers of God in our generation, are in the best position of any human being in all of history to follow after God because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. He's with us. We can never, in fact, Jesus said, I will never uh, forsake you. We will always be in his presence. Unlike Noah, God would speak to Noah but we have the Holy Spirit interceding, guiding us into all truth, recalling to our remembrance everything Jesus taught, leading us in paths of righteousness for, for His namesake. So one of the things that we see about Noah is he walked with God, and if we have the temptation to say, well, it would have been easier then because God talked to him, we need to recognize where we are in the resource we have available. We have the Word of God available to us, which uh, instructs us and uh, causes the man of God to be adequately equipped for every good work in Christ Jesus, according to Paul writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, so if you're quick to say as a man to use as an excuse, well, Noah had it better because God talked to him, stop yourself. Just You can just stop. Because we're in the best position of any generation in all of mankind to be men following God. So he, we know that he undertook this fantastic endeavor. 
in following God. God invited him to do something. I've already let the cat out of the bag, proverbially speaking, is saying that Noah did all that God commanded him to do. So let's make some assessments about Noah as a man who followed God in his generation. First of all, we must be willing to be obedient to what God tells us to do. Obedience. And as you look at your own life, do you see the act of obedience displayed in your life in relationship to the things God's commanded you to do? It's an easy indicator. It's a hard one oftentimes when you ask yourself, am I being obedient? Obedience is a rare quality. Oftentimes when I've had the privilege to hire individuals, the question I have now begun to be one of my leading questions when I look at hiring men or people in general, men or women, I will ask them, how do you do deal with being told no? Because this has become a leading indicator in my professional relationship with individuals. See, I'm an advocate of, I think there are many ways to do things. I am, I've come to understand through experience, my way may not be the best way. So I love it when somebody comes to me and says, hey, I think we should do it this way or do it that way. But there is ultimately a, a point in time where a decision must be made. And in leadership, if you've served in any form of leadership, you know that someone must make a decision. You guys all realize that's why there's only one steering wheel in a car? <laughs> right? Because there's two ways to get you know, to Lowe's, but someone has to make the decision. But when a person is told no, it indicates how they respond to that, how obedient they are. Because sometimes we want something and we go to God and we say, God, I want this. And he says no. And we say, fine. Then I'm going to get it myself. I don't like being told no. So in your heart as a man, how do you deal with being told no? Are you an obedient soul? Do you trust that even when God says no to what you want, you trust him to produce that thing which he's going to work? The, the heart of obedience in a man is a very unique quality. In fact, in our generation, it's extremely unique. In the period of Judges, in the history of Israel, it says that everyone was doing right in their own eyes. And I feel like I live in the period of judges sometimes. Relativism has an influence on our culture. Well, that's good for you, man, but that's not good for me. That's relativism. The idea of obedience in a man's heart is essential if you desire to be a passionate pursuer of God. Another observation we can make about Noah is he did have clarity of calling. Noah told him. Or God told Noah, Noah, what was the clarity of calling? Noah, build an ark. Having clarity of calling is very, very important. As a man, can you identify clarity of calling in your life, what you're called to as a man? Paul tells us in Colossians 3, he says, do whatever you do is unto the Lord. 
Our calling is, is, um, is to honor the Lord. Jesus said, John 15, he says, Abide in me and I in you, for apart from me you can do what? Nothing. Now, I think there's perspective in that to understand, yes, we can do a lot of things without abiding in Christ, but there's nothing of lasting, enduring, eternal value that can be done apart from Christ. Can you as a man this morning think through the things that God has commanded you to do? Deuteronomy 6. God told Israel to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now that's a, a, a premise that we can uh, absorb into our lives is to understand what it is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. You see, we have commands. Jesus said, Matthew 28, 19, what does he tell the disciples to do? Those men who were following Christ, what does he tell them to do? Go ye therefore into all the world and make what? disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. He doesn't say go and make converts. He says go and make disciples. That's a command. As a man in our lives, is where, if, we do, if we resolve in the theme of our conference today is to look at pursuing God, we must have clarity of calling. And as a man this morning, can you Look at your life and identify the clarity of commands that God has set out before you. If you're a married man, you have a very distinctive command to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's a command. And just for the sake of review, that's not situational. It's not circumstantial. It's an issue of obedience of whether I'm going to do that, right? So the same things we see in Noah as a man after God in pursuit, following after God, he's obedient. He, he builds the ark. He, he has clarity. The way that Noah builds the ark is the same way that we walk in obedience in our lives, and that is by walking with God. Not walking ahead, but walking with God. Allowing Him to show us and to teach us along the path. There are two remaining elements that I think are very, very important to observe from Noah's life. We obviously see he's obedient. We obviously see he has clarity. But these last two elements, I think, equally contribute to successful pursuit of God. The next one is the element of courage. Courage in that internal capacity of a human soul to stand against a culture. Can you imagine how many jokes were told about Noah in his neighborhood? Hey, honey, how's our neighbor doing building that ark in his yard? Every time I drive I-68, I see the, what is it called, the... Yeah, the ark of, what is it? But the, God's ark of safety. Every time I drive through, you know, how long has that been on I-68? Anybody know? Early 80s. Somebody had a vision. Build the, the ark of safety, right? Do you guys in Cumberland, is that a joke? 
Wow, you know, wow, you know, hey, how long are they going to build the ark of safety? Can you imagine amongst unbelievers how many jokes are told about the ark of safety on I-68? Right? Think of Noah. 50 to 100 years. He's out there. Right? Collecting the pitch, heating the pitch, applying the pitch. Hey, Noah, what are you doing? Ha, 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 it's going to flood, right? Can you imagine the, 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 the character, the courage, the resolve it takes to stand in a culture? For 50 to 100 years, building an ark that nobody else understands? because he received a command that nobody else heard, and he's doing with commitment what he was told to do even though nobody understands him. And yet as men, sometimes at work, if we don't get a promotion, if our buddies don't invite us to the ball game, they don't invite us out for a beer after, after we're all like, oh, I'm being persecuted. <laughs> really? I mean, let's get some... Let's get some Hebrews 12. I love, the, I love Hebrews 12. You have not resisted yet to the point of bloodshed. Persecution. <laughs> Noah, man, there had to have been like t-shirts with Noah's face on it. <laughs> if they had t-shirts back then. You know, maybe they were tunics or, or something or animal skins. As a man who's resolved in his heart to pursue after God, you must have courage. You have to have courage. When in our generation, or maybe at work, they say, hey, look, you can't speak against same-sex relationships. You can't speak, you can't have your Bible at work. You can't tell people about Jesus. It creates a hostile work environment. Do you have the courage, the resolve, to say my God is bigger than my employment and I'm going to trust him because I'm going to honor him in a generation? It takes courage. And courage is measured in obedience to, to stand fast with the convictions that God has given us. And the reason, I know that this may be tender to you, this may be sensitive to you. You might be quick to say, well, Sean, you don't understand. I have to provide for my family. Oh, yeah, I, I think God understands that. Paul says to not provide for your family is to be worse than an unbeliever. So God has said in his word, there's, he understands how important it is. But what's more important? Having the courage to stand and honor him in a generation Courage has been assessed as an attribute of a human soul in contrast to another human emotion that's called fear. It's been observed that everybody on the battlefield experiences fear. Fear is a natural human re response. But it's an individual's response to fear that determines whether there is courage or not. See, courage enables an individual to overcome fear and depress. So one of the attributes that we see in Noah 
is he was obedient, he had clarity of calling, and he had courage. And here's the last component as we wrap up our first session. Is he had endurance. I've already pointed out here in, um, well actually I haven't. In chapter 7 and verse 5 it says, Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. He had endurance. In a life of 950 years, he was a righteous man. Peter says he was a preacher of righteousness. He did all that God commanded him to do. So he had endurance. Maybe you said, hey, you know what? I've been, I've been trying to do this thing that God's called me to do for a whole three months, and it's just killing me. Wow, really? Three months. Wow. What about 75 years? Many of us, at best, we can hope to live to our 80s. As a man, have you resolved to follow God with courage and passion the entire duration of your life? Do you realize that if you've resolved to do that, it's going to require endurance? It's not a short-term run. There's a lot of people that start out in a race. But it's not starting the race that matters. It's what? It's finishing. If you're a runner, if you've ever done a marathon, they don't hand the t-shirts out at the starting line. Where do they hand the t-shirts out? At the finish line. We all know that's why people run marathons. It's for the t-shirt. It's to wear around and go, look, I've run, I've finished, right? I'm a finisher, right? Now, nobody's running a, I don't see any marathon shirts in here, 5K. That's, I mean, let's be honest, guys. This is a men's conference. That's why everybody, they do it for the t-shirt. I finished the 5K, right? What? I tell my wife that all the time. Yeah, it's just for the shirt, right? They don't hand the t-shirts out at the starting line. They hand them at the finishing line. Why? Because not everybody who starts a race finishes. And I think as men, if we have resolved in our heart to be followers after God, then we have to commit to the long term. We run with the intent to finish the race that is set before us, not start the race that is set before us. So the four elements that we see in Noah's life, he was obedient, he had clarity of calling, he had courage, and he also displayed endurance. So I think if we look at an example of being men that are following God, we can use those as examples in our life. We have to have an attitude of obedience. We must have clarity of calling. We must have courage to stand fast in a generation. And we must have endurance. Father, thank you just for your word. Thank you for the histories you have recorded for our benefit. And thank you for Noah's example, a man of righteousness, a just man, a man perfect in his generation. And help us, Lord, to imitate him, to be an example like him as we follow and walk with you. Help us towards that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.